everybody, Daniel Ramsey here with Scale the Podcast. Today's guest is fantastic. We have Andrew Warner here. He is the founder of Mixergy. Basically, it's a platform to not only interview, but also educate entrepreneurs from other entrepreneurs. And as you know, this podcast is all about growing and scaling a business. And today's topic is fantastic. It's stop asking questions, how to basically have high impact interviews. Um, Andrew has done over 2000 podcasts interviews like imagine that 2000 this is mastery at the highest level and i'm really excited to dive in with him okay andrew thank you so much for joining today i'm so excited to actually dive into stop asking questions thanks by the way you have an incredible operation here i love that you've got brand in there also connecting with us you're recording two different places you've got the uh the logo behind you over the shoulder i got phone calls from your team i got calendar invitations i've never seen anybody be so on it with multiple different people from multiple different directions yeah we're really fortunate we have um we're at almost two thousand people right now at in inside of my outdesk and uh, leverage is not our issue but our podcast, and which is why you're here, that is an issue for us. And I'm excited to hear about your interviewing questions and like how to rock and roll through that. Um, we reached out to you and said, hey, we want to be on your podcast. And then you're like, no, 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 you want to interview us. Which is <laughs> Did I say that? Oh, <laughs> in fact, uh, that's never happened to us before. So I'm excited. I, I immediately I said, yes, let's get Andrew on. I want to hear his story. Thanks. I want to know exactly what's going on. And I think it'd be valuable for our audience. So yeah, man, I'm just excited that you're here. Let, I, I'm curious, let's give our audience a background, who you are, where you've been, you know, just the, the fun digits. Graduated from college and I created this online grieving card company that I took to over $30 million in sales all almost all advertising sales, followed it up with something called grab.com, which was the world's first billion dollar jackpot. We've since sold the businesses, including the name that went on to uh, become this huge company in, uh, in Asia. Anyway, I took some time off after that sale and just traveled the world, hung out and so on. And then I said, what do I wish I had when I was running a business? When I remember at the time I hired this coach who had no business helping entrepreneurs with their company, but I paid her a lot of money actually it came through Tony Robbins. It was just like someone who'd gone through a Tony Robbins seminar and had gone through another in order to learn how to, how to, how to be a coach, but she had no sense of what I was going through. And I was just really challenged. And I said, I wish that somebody created this thing where real entrepreneurs can be there for me, for each other and talk openly about the stuff we did. And so I slowly started doing that. And that became Mixergy, a site where um, I started interviewing entrepreneurs at first and I bring them back to teach courses. We've done in-person events and so many other things. That's really cool. And actually, <clears throat> I agree with your mission as an entrepreneur myself. I'm always like, you want me to hire you as a coach, but are you doing the thing that right. I actually want to accomplish? Because right. if you've never done it, why would I hire you as a coach? You can't help me. And, and then how about this? How about the people who will then come on and say, I'm going to speak at this event on the keys to being a millionaire. Go, Have you built a company? Are you Did you hit a million? No, I studied them great for you. I studied how to cook. I still can't do much. Right? <laughs> That's so awesome. Well, I'm curious, as you were building a $30 million and exiting, you took some time off. There's probably some gold in that. What happened? What was that like for you? 
I hate to say it, but I didn't really have much of a social life up until that point. And so I was going to catch up on my social life. Moved to Londonless. I decided to go out six out of seven nights a week. I made wow. six instead of all seven, which I would have done. I had the energy for it, but I said, I've got to not burn out on this. And then during the day, I would go ride my bike for hours. I'd listen to old radio shows, something that was disconnected from like the day-to-day -day world and just go for hours on the Pacific Coast Highway. And then I started traveling. I, I had this idea that one day I might want to run with the bulls in Pamplona. So I flew to Pamplona and I started running with the bulls, which was not really as exciting as I expected it to be. Um, and that was basically it. That was a good chunk of my life. It was really fun. Yeah, that's good. What did you learn from the exit? Like, um, most entrepreneurs have never been through an exit. They build something mm -hmm. and, and it just either slowly goes away or, you know, they changed. Oh, up. You know what? It was the desperation. I'm going to be open about the name of the company because it's been so long. I could, at one point I was so desperate to be done. American greetings said, we will buy you. You've got this online greeting card. We have offline greeting cards. We'll buy you out. And I go, this is great. But we go through our, they said, we need to do our due diligence. I go, fantastic. Let's do the due diligence. And I think this is so professional. I'm going into their office. I'm being, I'm not being flown. I fly myself in, but I go, okay, it's a petty thing for me to say, if you're buying me out, you should also pay for my flight. I'm not going to push it. I go into their office. We go through this for weeks, months. I get mentally invested in this thinking, all right, I'm taking some time off. My brother, the team that knows about it gets mentally invested. We're gonna be part of American Greetings. We're gonna prove that we've done something that was worthwhile. And then they finally make the offer and here's their offer. Daniel, this is freaking nuts. It was, we're gonna buy you out with the cash that you have in the bank and then you're gonna to get to work for us for three years. And here's where my head was. Here's how burned out I was. I went back to my brother, who was my co-founder and partner in the business, and I made a case for why we should do it. And he said, wait, they're taking our money out of the bank account and they're using it to what? To like, to somehow buy the company, but we don't get that cash. We only, we end up with what? He said, why are we doing this? And then as the more he argued with me, the more I realized I'm physically and mentally just depleted. This is not a good deal. And that's what happens when you get sucked into one of these deals. And I gave them all kinds of information. I backed out of it. And then we took some time to just go back and work, which was really painful for me. And then we sold and I got to just take a breath and go, I'm not even going to feel guilty for not doing anything today. My whole day will revolve around the thing I want to do. I accept that I'm, I'm at burnout stage. Well, the reason you're here is you wrote a book and you've interviewed 2000 people, but I'm curious if you could go back to your younger self like that, Andrew, I get, I'm guessing you yes. were in your twenties, right? Yes. What would have you shifted about how you led, built, grew a company to make that ending not as painful? You know, I remember that, um, this guy, Ryan Scott wanted to buy our company and he came into our office and then we got to go into his office. Like he did the purchase a different way. He said, we're going to show you what we do because you're basically going to come work with us and we'll show you. And I could see how he had been in a similar business, a lot of email marketing, just like us. He, uh, he, he had thought about how to operate his systems differently, his team differently. We learned so much from that process, which we ended up not selling to them. Unfortunately, we would have done better. Um, but we learned so much from that. And what I wish I'd done was found other people who are in my space, but not competitive, and then gone to them and said, let me show you what we did, because we've come up with some clever things. But answer me how you do your thing. How do you 
in his case, he was sending out millions of emails a day using systems that he wrote himself. How do you customize all those millions? Let me show you how we do it. So that that interplay would have been incredibly helpful. Yeah, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Because you didn't know, or you thought your product was unique, or that you were in a site. Like, why? Why didn't all you of that? that? I did think my issues were unique. Nobody else was sending out half a million greeting cards a day. So how could they even understand us? Meanwhile, as I saw with Ryan Scott, he was sending out millions of regular emails a day and customized. There's similarities there, not exactly the same, but we could learn. So I did. I thought I was unique. I thought also that other people wouldn't want to do it. And then here's the problem that I had. I thought that I was on the outside and everyone else was on the inside. And I, I got a big charge out of that. Like, I'm going to show them that they are wrong and I'm right. And that helped me work hard. But it also then meant that I wasn't in their world and getting help from them and seeing what worked from them and getting introductions from them. And I could see when I, I lived in San Francisco for nine years, I could see entrepreneurs who were there were doing that a lot. They were really in each other's businesses, like mentally, sometimes physically doing interviews with developers on their behalf. I just didn't know that the world was accessible that way. And I thought instead of the world is accessible, there's something wrong with me for not accessing it. I thought the world is not accessible. They are wrong. I'm going to prove to them that I'm better off. And I think there's still a lot of people who don't realize how many of their heroes are accessible. How many authors that they've read their whose books they read will will return to emails, will respond to messages, will be there if they know how to do it right. How many people who, whose businesses they admire will get on a call with them and be those mentors, not lifelong mentors, but be the mentors in a conversation and help them out. Be mentally invested in their success or emotionally invested in their success because they've helped them out. I think that that's a, that's a, that was a failing of mine. I think that there are too many people who still fail that, at that. Fail to understand how many people are accessible and how many people's wisdom and help they could get if they know how to ask properly. I like it. I, I, there's a difference between mentorship and having a tribe. So I'd like you to dive into the piece that you find most valuable, whether it's the mentorship or tribe, but I have a couple masterminds that I've actually started and I'm, I'm a part of, and I get almost more from being, you know, shoulder to shoulder with my peers, trying to accomplish a goal and having accountability around that goal and having somebody to bounce ideas with than mentorship. But I'm curious because what you just said was mentorship is, is for you would have made a big difference. I'll give you an example of where I finally did it right. I stopped riding my bike. I got enough. I said, I'm going to start on something that I wish existed, which became these interviews. And I said, I have this idea for a live event that I could charge for. And this guy, Noah Kagan, had run an event. I forget what the event was, but it was on his blog, OK Dork. And he got amazing people to speak at it. And I said, Noah, um, can I ask you how you charge for your event, how you organized it? And even though he was in the same space kind of as me, he was also working with the startup community and I was too, but he was focused more on social entrepreneurs, people who are creating apps for the Facebook platform where he used to work. He was one of the first uh, employees there. He got on a freaking call with me. He spent about an hour walking me through how he did it, where he got his customers, how he charged for it, how he actually made this thing pay and how much he, he, money he made from it. It was amazing. And so he helped me figure out how I could charge for my own events when I was charging for events. That kind of one-on-one -on -one guidance of me saying, but I have this one problem that's different from the, it, it, and him answering it is so much better than a blog that I could have read. And I'm sure he'd written on OK Dork, which was good. So much better than a YouTube video that I could have seen, which I'm sure is good. I want that customized thing. And here's the upside of that. Years later, he created a soft, uh, a company called OK, uh, no, 
it was called AppSumo, where he offers deals on software. It's incredibly successful, uh, eight-figure-plus business. When he got started, he came back to me and said, Andrew, you're doing this podcast. I'd like to be on. He was on the podcast, and I heard years later that he got substantial sales in the early days by being on the podcast. So without recognizing it, I was able to reciprocate the help that he'd given me, and it goes back and forth. I told you I'm now in Austin, Texas. When I came to Austin, Texas for two days to just look at a house, first of all, he introduced me to the real estate broker. And second, when I realized I couldn't make my hotel, I call, I texted him and he said, dude, come on over. I've got a guest house. Sure enough, the guy had a guest house by a pool. It was better than any freaking hotel I could be in. And we sat by the pool and we talked as he drank non-alcoholic beer and I drank whiskey. That's the power. How do you get to know the people that you want to learn from, have them help you directly, and then build a relationship with them? And when I say I care about interviewing. It's more than that. It's these one-on-one relationships where you can ask questions and learn from people you admire. I'm thinking of so many ways to use that skill. I'm thinking of my sales team that we literally yesterday just had a summit where we talked about how to connect and Mm -hmm. how the relationship is everything. I mean, literally everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious, you're getting access to people who are wildly successful don't need to be on your podcast, aren't getting paid, yep. um, probably have multiple levels of, of uh, doorkeepers, you know, or, or- I'll give you an example. Tim Ferriss, he clearly is not in the business of wasting his time. Wrote the four-hour work week, right? He wants yep. to be as efficient as possible. He came to a live event that I did in San Francisco for free, spoke to my audience for free, and then hung out with them afterwards to the point that people then had this relationship with him that I had no idea about. So yeah, absolutely. thing. So how do you do that? Like, what's the steps or what's the, I I mean, I know this is in your book, so you're giving away some of your framework and everything that you do. And if you haven't um, gotten a chance yet, we're going to put in the show notes uh, exactly where to get his book. Um, It's stop asking questions, how to lead high impact interviews. And I, I love the high impact, right? Because I interview people and you want them to land and for people to get value. That's the idea. Um, but how do you get access to somebody like Tim, who, by the way, helped build our business like that? We, we were in business before his book came out and then he put his book out and like our business blew up. Wow. So, Tim, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate you. Um, but how do you get access and what, what, what does that what does that look like? Motivated moments is one big way to do it. A motivated moment is where somebody needs something, they're doing something and they're motivated to to be there. A motivated moment is when someone like Robert De Niro, who's so shy and does and is awkward on screen, suddenly appears on late night TV and sits there while the host laughs at him, right? Why does he do it? It's not because he craves sitting and answering personal questions about his life. It's because he has a new movie out and he needs people to go see the new movie because that's part of the process of getting people to to see a movie. So he goes and does it. That's a motivated moment. Everybody has motivated moments. When you think about an author who seems hard to reach because they're deep in the study, like Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, he's not somebody who hangs out much. You don't see him at cocktail parties. You don't see him out in the world. He just loves to research and read. I got him on the podcast because he was in a motivated moment. He had a brand new book out. He was looking to get people to know about it and he was eager to do it. A motivated moment, that's the key. And so when you see somebody who's at a dinner party who's usually not super super social, how did that host get them there? 
sometimes it's they get into the software space and they're curious to meet other people in software. And so they'll come out to a dinner party. I think about events that I've done like that. Somebody cares about startups because they're now investing in one or wants to invest in one or wants to start an app for their thing. I tell them I'm hosting a dinner party. Here are the people who I've interviewed who are going to be there. You should come in, find out about, they're going to be there. They're more likely, I should say, to be there because they've got a motivated moment. So we look for those motivated moments. When are people eager to do it? Instead of just busting your head, trying to go through a brick wall, saying, please, you should do this. I'm going to be persistent. Look for the times when they are almost eager for you to ask them. And that's much better. And that's the lens by which you approach somebody to be on your podcast, these Mm -hmm. motivated moments. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, um, so what I'm drinking, by the way, is um, (laughs) a rum alternative. I thought I'm having this calm conversation. I shouldn't be worked up. I don't need coffee. I'll try a rum alternative that's non-alcoholic. It'll give me the same soothing, calming experience of rum without any of the alcohol so I don't get drunk here with you. Um, It's not soothing me. I still have a lot of energy, but it is so spicy that I feel it in the back of my throat. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Okay. So these motivated moments, yes, look for them. And then what's your approach to getting these folks on your show? Like, what is the, like, let's say I want to land a world-class person, somebody who would get a lot of eyeballs. They would want to buy it. Let's say I'm a software developer and I need this one guy who's a Silicon Valley guy who you know, raised a lot of capital and has a lot of influence. And I need that person on my show. We find a motivated moment and there's an opportunity. What do I do to book them correctly? If you're talking about booking somebody on a show, be specific about when you want to do it so that there's no, are you interested in doing the podcast? Then you come back and ask them about the day. Just say, can I interview you? Tell them about what, can I interview you about how you sold your business? Can I interview you about how you wrote your book? Can I interview you about your sales process? What are you interviewing about? This is for, then tell them who it's for. It's an, it's for my site. It's Mixergy.com. It has an audience of, I don't know, a million entrepreneurs. I'm just going through like what you might say, um, all in the tech space. And they would all want to buy your book because it fits in with their worldview. If you're interested which of these dates work for you or hit reply and suggest another. What you want to do is tell them what you're asking for very clearly, why they should do it very clearly. And then what's the action they should take so that there's no back and forth about the time and sure. Is it this, is it that short, clear, and quick. Now that's for interviews. I think a lot of people who are listening to this are not looking to do interviews, but maybe they say, I want to become a better salesperson. I want to become a better entrepreneur. I want to learn how somebody created an app. How do you reach those people who are doing the thing that you want to do and say, not like Andrew does and say, which I could say, I have a, an audience and reputation. You should do an interview with me and you'll get all that. What do you say to somebody who you just want to have a one-on-one conversation and learn from them? Again, I think in those situations, motivated moments help. A motivated moment for them is maybe they are trying to grow their sales team. And you say, my sales team is about twice as big as yours. Maybe I can share with you some of what worked for us. Maybe another one is people are moving all over the country, right? It's, I noticed that you moved into Austin. We happen to be in Austin. I can tell you about where the local scene is and who you should know here. I'd love to also find out a little bit about what you've done to grow your sales team because I'm in admiration. Would you like to get together for dinner? Would you like to get the families together at this outdoor playground where we can also have dinner because every barbecue joint seems to have a playground here in in Austin. (laughs) So that's what I'm talking about. That motivated moment. Yeah, you have to know it, attack it, 
Mm -hmm. So why did you write this book? Like why exactly write this book and how did it come about and what would somebody get if they were to read the book and I don't know, just give us the the idea in the background. It started when a friend of mine asked me to write a tip about how to, how I build relationships with people. And he said, he's an introvert and he wants to learn and he wants to, or he wants to write a book for people who are introverts like him. And so I wrote my thing and then I just kept writing and writing. And I realized something as I kept writing, I am so systematic about my conversations like nobody else. I used to work for Dale Carnegie, the, the man, the company started by the man who wrote how to win friends and influence people. I admired how he wrote how to win friends and influence people based on what he learned from the students who are in his class, taking out his self-improvement techniques into the world and coming back and reporting on it. And then he wrote about it. I was kind of in a similar situation without realizing it. Every time I did an interview, I would have it transcribed. I would often sit down with my producers and then also with the coach to go through the transcript and say, why did that person tell me that? Why did that person get angry there? What happened? And then we have a theory. We wrote it down in a Google doc. And then I would try it again and say, okay, I think that this worked. Let's try it again. And if it works again, great. That means it's a keeper. If it doesn't work, we say, why doesn't it work? Well, how do we try another way? And then we try that and then we write it down. So I had this whole book and I realized, why do I stop at one chapter? Let's just keep writing. I've got this unique understanding about how conversations work because I've transcribed them all and I've gone through them. Let's bring it out to other people. And then I realized something else. Daniel, we're in a unique point in the world. There's never been a time where people could interview more than there than ever before in history, right? If you take a look at like Larry, uh, what's his name? Uh, Larry King, Barbara Walters, and other interviewers, they'd interviewed a lot but their books were always about how to have general conversations. And so Larry King's book is full of just random anecdotes more than it is about specific ways to do interviews, even though he'd done these interviews because he was talking to a world where people couldn't do interviews. They couldn't watch Larry King on CNBC, CNN and say, well, I should go on CNN too. I need a book. No, they didn't have that access. So we finally have a world where more people could do interviews. We also have a world where more people are, are accessible where you could do one-on-one -on -one conversations with someone you admire and say, I want to learn this thing from you and have them be open. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I don't one, want us to waste it. I want, I want to give people steps. I want to show them how to do it right, how to get deep in. Okay, so what are the steps? Okay, here's one. The book is called Don't Ask Questions. Stop, excuse me, stop asking questions because of this. A lot of times when we go into one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and we want to learn from them, we pepper them with questions. So how did you grow your sales team? What about how did you hire? How do you fire? What's a good tool to use for managing the hiring process? It's like this whole question, question, question. We sound a lot wait, like wait, a wait. four-year-old. I think it's really important. You had a whiny voice there because yes. that's how we yes. all perceive that guy, yes. right? Yes. They're, they're sucking the life out of the conversation and maybe even out of the room. And so- instinctively, people then start to treat you like a needy person when you ask endless questions. If we could do some shifts in the conversation, it changes our perception and changes how the conversation goes for both sides. So instead of saying, how did you start your uh, sales team? How do you build it? Sometimes you just say, tell me how you started your sales team. Tell me how you went from 20 to 40 salespeople. Directing people has this subtle effect of changing the conversation from being one of and needy to one of, I got this, I'm guiding this conversation towards something that's useful. For me, it's something that's useful to me and to my podcast audience, someone who's doing it one-on-one. -on -one. It's something that's useful so that the person who's being asked all these questions and guided through this conversation feels like it's worth their while. Like they're not just talking to a needy, needy, needy person. So that's one. 
Stop asking questions. Even rephrasing is a help. Um, does that make sense? It does, but I want to clarify because I think you said something that's pure gold, and I know it's in the book. Um, what, what it is is your questions need to be specific with a goal in mind where there's context, right? I mean, you know, how you grew your yes. sales team from 20 to 40 right. is a very right. specific context conversation, one in which I'd be happy to share. But how'd you go your sales team is so vague. I'm like, I ran into the wall. I <laughs> shot my, I almost, you know, shot myself twice. Uh, you know, I interviewed and fired the, a lot of wrong people. I mean, it's just, it's so vague. And I think that specificity of narrowing it right. down with context and a time frame and a result, I think kind of like a smart goal, right? Yes. So the other person doesn't feel like I, I'm wandering and floating through this conversation. I don't know where it's going. You want them to know where it's going. You want them to know what you're getting at so you can work together at it. So that's, uh, that's an important thing. Another thing is I told this to a salesperson and he says, oh yeah, I'm doing this now in, in sales calls. One of the things that I do is within the interviews, you can see me. I tell about a vulnerability, a failure of mine, a challenge of mine. And I went to my interview coach and I said, why am I sounding like such a wuss? I keep talking about my failures and the other person's not. And this is uh, Jeremy Carrigan, the guy who was a producer for Inside the Actor Studio. He, he just shut up for a bit and then he went to my transcripts and he said, actually, Andrew, look, you talk about your problem with your mom. If you scroll down to the bottom of the Google Doc where we have the transcript, you'll see she talks about her mom and how her mom put too much pressure and how that impacted her. Because you do this all the time. You do a little vulnerability. You expect immediate results. You don't get it immediately and you think you failed, but that's not how it works. You get it later on. It's not transactional. You share their share. So I said that to um, – there's a company called People AI that helps salespeople with uh, smart CRM software. They invited yeah. me to speak to their salespeople, and one of the salespeople said, this is great. He says he does that too. He says before starting a sales call because he wants to extract pain point from their customers and it's weird for them to just start rattling off problems with their business. Yep. He says, sorry, I, um, my, I'm focused now, but just a few minutes ago, I was dealing with this problem with our sales department and then he gives a real problem that he goes with. And then he goes into the rest of the conversation. Now he's already planted the seed. We can be vulnerable here about our problems. We can share our challenges and now- it's weird for the other person not to reciprocate. It's weird for it to just be one person. And so people do. And so there, there are lots of different specific techniques that, that I use that I'm noticing people use outside of interviews, but within interviews, I've tested, tested, tested to know that they work. And if you do it right, these conversations become so meaningful and they lead to lifelong friendships. Well, I, it's, it's interesting because yesterday, again, we just had a sales summit and one of the challenging questions that I got from one of my sales team is how to actually do that. Cause they want to seem smart and like they have all the answers mm -hmm. and they want to feel like they're adding value right yes. to the, to the conversation and leading with vulnerability yes. feels like the opposite of that, but you obviously use it. So what would you coach that salesperson in, um, his name is Chris. Chris, I hope you're listening. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it is hard to find something that is appropriate to share that would land for a customer that wouldn't make the call awkward. Yeah, you wouldn't want to go into the call saying my whole company is such a mess. I don't even know why anyone buys from us. By the way, yeah. thanks for getting on the sales call with me. No, but we all have little slip ups that we make, even if it's slip ups like I 
you blame yourself. I can't believe that I forgot to add this to our CRM. I can't believe that because I forgot to close our sales or to, uh, to report how many of these calls we made this week, we couldn't predict sales properly for next week. There's always a little something that you're fully ready to do. And if it's not that, it could be something from your personal life. Like I forgot to add to my shared calendar with my wife that I'm going to be out on Friday night and she booked us with friends. It's going to be so awkward when I dump out of being with our friends to go for drinks, but I do that all the time. I don't know why she's with me, right? Like that little bit of vulnerability about the process. If you can't make it about your work, make it about your personal life, but they're not going to share unless you share. And they're not going to share as openly unless you share something. And the challenge with being in sales is if they don't share their problems, you can't, you don't have the opportunity to solve them. Right. So they're not going to no buy because it's a great thing. They're going to buy because this fire has been burning for too long and they're finally ready to acknowledge it. They're telling you, and now it's stupid not to buy the fire extinguisher. Right. I love it. I love it. So, okay. Got this one vulnerability. It's a huge superpower in the interview or in the sales call. Uh, what else? What's in the framework? Okay. So there are times when people don't want to give you anything back. Like I asked, uh, Jason Freed one time, Tell me about the challenges you had building Basecamp. Basecamp, phenomenal software for we use project it. manager. You do use it? We use Basecamp. Your company runs on Basecamp? Yeah, yeah. For, well, not the whole company, but our but, IT, we have a software division in the company to help keep our virtual assistants. But we, I love Basecamp. I think it's one of the best products out there. Uh, so I do love Basecamp. But as much as I love it, I wanted to know about a challenge of his. And in one of my early interviews, I said, Jason, tell me about a failure that you had. And he goes, I don't, I don't think we had any failures. Don't tell me about any setbacks. I don't think we do. I said, you must've had one. And I'm just now pushing. And he goes, Andrew, I don't think it's helpful to look back so, so antagonistically or so critically about your, your past. I said, how can I argue with that? All right, fine, let's move on. But in the back of my head, I always felt like such a failure for that. That really stung me that I couldn't penetrate there. And that I felt like, I don't know, that maybe the question was landing wrong. Anyway, one of the things that I did with J Jeremy Carrickin, the producer, was I brought that interview up. I said, what should I have done differently? And Jeremy says, you know, I have, um, I have a therapist who, when men sit down in front of her and she says, what's your problem? They say, nothing. Everything's good. My wife is complaining a lot, but everything's good with me. And she used to say, well, you came into my therapist's office to talk about something. You clearly have a problem. You, let's talk about it. I don't have any problems. Well, what about your wife? She clearly sees a problem. She just keeps complaining about things. I don't have any, I'm not, there's nothing wrong in our life. Things are good. She's finally the therapist. He says, stop complaining. Stop fighting the resistance. And she started joining the resistance. And so now he says, his therapist will say, wow, you know what? Everyone who comes in here has problems that they're overcoming it's great to have somebody here who just has it easy and no challenges at all. When she does that, the person goes, are you kidding me? No challenges. Do you know what my wife and I are going through right now? I don't know how. And then they go off. And so I've done that in interviews. When somebody resists, instead of saying, but come on, what you need to give me, I say, it's great to hear that somebody doesn't have any problems with their company and that everything's going well. And I did that with, J with Jason years later, after I learned this technique, joined the resistance. And then we got to be open. I got to hear about Campfire, this great chat program that he created long before Slack was ever created. And eventually he had to sunset it. So Slack became this multi-billion dollar company that just sold to, to a, a Salesforce. His thing was sunsetted. I got to hear him talk about how that, well, I wouldn't call it a failure, but that actually didn't work out. And then why it was okay and what he did to, to learn from it and how he incorporated what was in that 
into the Basecamp chat that we now see today that's not as noisy as Slack. So yeah. that's what I'm getting at. Lots of different techniques like that. Join the resistance. I like Join that. Join the resistance. Yeah, I, I, I flashed and I saw Darth Vader in for just a hot second. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Have you ever had um, an interview that has gone horribly wrong? Like if you've been with somebody and just not been able to connect and- Yes. Not, and, and then what's the, what, how do you just- how do you turn that around? Like what, because I've had interviews where like Brandon, who's on this call right now in the background, we both get on the call afterwards and we're like, we can't use this. This guy was like, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what we're going to do with this content because he or she just wasn't call interested. I called yeah. it out. I called it out. And sometimes people then just switch, call it out and go, you know what? I'm not, I invited you here because I wanted to hear specifically how you set up an e-commerce store and where you're getting your customers because e-commerce is so hot and you're doing well, but I'm not hearing anything that you did that worked. I'm not hearing any specifics. I'm just hearing these cliches. Now, this is not me theoretically saying that's what I would do. That's what I did do with a guest. I specifically said it. What you're saying is cliches. There's no specifics here. If you, That's what we're here to do. And I called it out and it's totally fine to call it out and to say to the guest afterwards, sorry, I, we, we're both agreeing that this is not going to go over well and let it go. Um, in my case, I just published it. Let the world see where I struggle. I love it. All right. Well, what else? Um, this framework is really interesting. I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm personally learning a lot. Um, what I'll advice you would you give? Put it in other people's mouths. So there's sometimes things that are really hard to say. And if, yourself, you just create antagonism in a, in a conversation, like to say to a potential customer, your site is ugly, is not going to win them over, even if their site is ugly. So I wonder how do you say things, right? At that point, then they start to argue, they feel insulted, all these emotions that are human that used to bother me because they're so human. Why can't humans be more rational? These things happen. I have to accept it. So the question is, how do you deal with it? So again, I go back and I don't just study my transcripts. I went back and I studied transcripts of famous histories over the years. And there's this famous one that everyone talked about, Mike Wallace talking to Ayatollah Khomeini. And apparently he called him a, he called him a lunatic. I go, yeah. how does he call him a lunatic? This is right after Khomeini takes over and, and has takes hostages, American hostages. And he goes over and calls him a lunatic. And it turns out, as I listen to the, to the video and I look at the transcript, he didn't call him a lunatic. He said... Ayatollah, forgive me, not my words. And then he says, the president of, of Egypt says this, not my words, but he called you, forgive me, a lunatic. What do you say to that? Now you can see an uncomfortable situation, even though he said that this is the president of, uh, of Egypt who said this. And then Ayatollah responds and continues the conversation. Mike Wallace gets to get on a flight and come back to the US without insulting the Ayatollah Khomeini who's holding, uh, who, who has no problem holding American hostages. And the thing that I took away from that is a lot of times we think people are saying that they are saying something negative, but by just putting it in someone else's mouth, it softens the blow. Now, is this uh, a, like, is this a soft thing to do? Maybe. Would it be more manly to say your website sucks? Ayatollah, you are a lunatic. Yeah, it would be. But you know what? People do have emotions. If we press the wrong button, we do piss them off and we lose them. It's much better to have these things that these conversation techniques to soften it. And so just putting someone else's mouth is helpful. So what I would say is, you know what? So I, I've heard I went on a I went online and I saw that a couple of people were complaining about your website. I went on to right, and so it's not you complaining now. It's you've done a little research and you say 
I see here that there are a couple of people complaining about your site and calling it ugly. Now, what do you do? I had that situation with Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday created Product Hunt. I wanted to say to him, there are not enough women on Product Hunt. I'm not blaming him. I don't have enough women on my podcast. I see the issue, but I wanted to say it. And I know it's one of those things that when you say to someone, you don't have enough women, they feel like, what are you calling me sexist now? It turns the conversation off. So instead I said, I went back and I looked at the early days of your site. Somebody said that there weren't enough women who are submitting products to Product Hunt or creating products that are listed on Product Hunt. It still seems to be the case. You were open to that comment before. What do you say to that comment today? And now he gets to talk about the challenge of it, how he's working hard to improve it instead of sexist and everybody is now sexist in the world, or I don't know what he would say. That's what I'm talking about. So bottom line, if you have a harsh thing to say, maybe instead of putting it in your own mouth, find a way to put it in someone else's mouth, do a little research, see who says it, and then say, this is what I'm seeing. Someone else kind of, said it. It's kind of a fun way to get asked the hard questions without pissing the people off. I, I, I see a lot of value in that. Yeah. Um, when you think about an interview, like what's the structure that makes the most sense for you and for podcasts that gets the most ears and or eyeballs on? And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to wrap up with like mm -hmm. the highest level stuff for the audience so that they, if they're thinking about interviewing people to help their sales world or thinking about starting a podcast, they're, they've got the best format from a guy who's done 2000 interviews. So I've now been, been interviewed, not a lot, but a few times um, for this book because we're just getting started. Yep. And I've noticed that you took time before we got started to say, here's what I'm trying to do here. Here's what the goal is. I've called out other interviewers and said, I didn't know where I was going here. What are you trying to find out? They literally will ask me about Austin, Texas in the interview. They'll ask me about marriage. They'll ask me about the early days of my business. Where is this going? Are you just grasping at different things and seeing what hits? I get it. Maybe that's a thing, but I, I should at least know it. I don't know where you're going with this. And so it leaves me with this uncomfortable situation sitting here going, all right, um, am I taking too long to answer this? Is this what they're looking for? Where am I? So the thing that I would say, whether it's big conversations on podcasts like mine and yours, if it's one-on-one -on -one conversations that you have with someone you just met or someone that's a customer of yours, just say where it's going. Where is it going? Our goal for this conversation is to just get to know how you work. I don't know if this will be a good business relationship, but if it is, we can know about it at the end. My goal for this conversation is to understand how your business, just tell me what the goal is or better still, if somebody's coming to you for help, say, What's your, what's your win here? What's your ideal goal? We, you scheduled a 15 minute get to know you session. What's your goal for this session? What are you trying to understand? Set it up front so we both know and the person who's being asked will feel relief and help you get what you're trying to do, what you're trying to get at. Yeah, it makes sense. When, when you're interviewing somebody and it's going really, really well, what's the energy like, and cause energy is so important in, in a conversation yes. and face to face. And I think people ignore that and they just yeah. kind of go, sometimes they go through the motions. Yeah. Like I've been interviewed and I'm like, geez, are they reading these questions? Like kids, <laughs> it kind of feels awkward a little bit. And I'm not sure, like, like you, I, I wasn't sure where to go. Um, but what's the energy that you're conveying to the person on the other side so they can open up and they can have a real conversation and, and make it make it work for the audience is the energy I'm conveying and the energy I'm looking for them to convey. The energy I'm conveying is one of 
I'm finally going to be the person who lets you talk and get to know what's inside of you. We're all dying to talk. But if you wake up in the morning and you say to your spouse, I had this crazy dream last night, they're more likely to say, oh, me too. And then tell you about their crazy dream than they are to say, what happened? And even if they say what happened, they might follow it up very quickly with me too. People do not give us a chance to express ourselves. I'm here to say, this is going to be your chance. And it's going to be there for the world to see your way in a, in a depth that you didn't even know existed. That's the energy I'm communicating. The energy I want from them is something that we used to express at Dale Carnegie when we taught people. I, I used to work for Dale Carnegie. Um, and people would come to Dale Carnegie and Associates to learn how to speak and how to influence people. And people, some of them would say, I just don't have it in me. I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to communicate. I'm not that type of person. I'm more introverted. And Dale Carnegie used to say, everyone can be incredibly articulate if you hit them in the shin with a two by four, mm -hmm. meaning like you just wrong them and they could tell you all the reasons why you wronged them. They shouldn't have done it. Why'd you do it? Right. That emotional. And I want the person I'm talking with to hit on something so emotionally powerful that they can't stop talking, that they are fully on fire, like that most ignorant person in the world who was hitting the shins with the two by four. And that's a tough thing to do to tap those emotional places that they just go off. And that's part of the work. And you do the pre-interview stuff in order to pull yes. those moments out. Let's talk a yep. little bit about that because while the format of the interview is important, I think the the producer pre-work is probably another special sauce that you that you do. Yeah, I had the situation where after a few of my early interviews, I would end the interview and people go, like, all right, pressure's off. And I say, oh man, I wish I had told you about that time when I hacked into my boss's computer to see how he got his customers so that I could learn what I could do when I started my company. I go, that's a great story. And I go, yeah, I would have told it because it's been so long and my boss and I laugh about it because it's not really hacking, but it is. I go, well, why do I not know that? And then I realized it's because people need a little time to think about stuff. We need a little time to be able to cut them off and ask questions and then interrupt so that we can juices. And so I experimented with before an interview, calling up my guests and saying, you're going to be on tomorrow. I just want you to sound as good as possible because it's going to live on the internet forever. The internet's pen, not, not pencil, right? You, you, I know you've talked in the past about how you started your company because of, but what? And then they start telling me, and if it's interesting, I go, okay, let's save it there so it sounds fresh for the interview. And if it's not, I go, actually, let's move on because I think there's something else that could work. So I'm bouncing, bouncing as much as possible and looking for those key stories. I did that for a long time. And then I brought in a producer and I discovered that having somebody else do it makes it sound better. She can ask the same questions that I might ask. She can pick up on my rhythm. But when, she, when people tell her the great story first, and then they come back to do a podcast with me, they don't say, like I told you before, you know, they almost even forget that they told anyone connected to me. They just say, how did you know that? And then they tell me this amazing story. And so it sounds fresher. And frankly, because she's a different person and talking in private, she can get more personal things from people. And then we can decide whether we, whether they want to use it or not. In the book, you talk about like a pivotal moment or a personal thing or something of controversy that you'd pull out of those pre-interviews. How do you choose what to put into an interview versus what to leave? Like, what's the methodology for choice around the gold that is mined in the pre-interview? I find that life is full of these moments that have more, more value than we imagine. For example, my kid for years was like practicing to swim. 
and he finally got his his um his stroke right where he was really moving the way you're supposed to but he still could not pass the test that would allow him to jump off the diving board at our pool or would allow him to go in the deep end of the pool and as much as he put work into that what finally changed was one day he learned to get his head above water to doggy paddle which is not a great you know swim stroke and then put his head back underwater and continue to doggy paddle and then get his head back up and occasionally do the, the right breaststroke and then finally get to the finish line. And I realized the little thing that we hadn't practiced that, had, that wasn't even beautifully done changed everything, which was he learned how to breathe while swimming, get his head up and breathe. Small thing, not perfect, had huge impact. And I'm looking for that. The little things that you discover that are small, but have outsized power over your life. That's the thing. What are those? And those are always interesting to talk about. Hmm. If you could go back to the, cause you did 2000, which by the way, I've probably only done a couple hundred. So it's, it's interesting to, to have you here and interview you. But if you could go back to your most successful most interesting, the one that people pat you on the back and say, damn, that was a good show. What did it have in it? What, what did it look like? What, what was the process? Um, it's often these local heroes. So there are these communities online where the um, incredibly passionate. So for example, on Reddit for a long time, there was this community called entrepreneur ride along where entrepreneurs who are aspiring to build something would in, would kind of journal in public say, so today, here's what I built. And then they'd get thumbs up from people. Here's what happened today that worked. They'd get thumbs up from people. And you could see that this guy um, who created Maids in Black was getting a lot of thumbs up. A lot of people in this small community were, were excited about his story. And I found the story. Actually, it probably was someone in my audience who found it. And I thought, what an interesting story. No wonder they're, they're amazed by it. He's a guy who said, everyone's thinking about these big tech issues. I just think that for maids, there's no online experience for hiring a maid. You still have to find people on Yelp and make phone calls. And it just feels backwards and old. I'm not going to go for the sexy new business like Airbnb. I'm going to go back to an old business and just add a little bit of software to it. And everyone was captivated by how well that worked and also how that could translate to other industries. They started thinking, well, would gardeners need this? Would there need to be plumbers who need this? What else can I do this with? So they signaled to me that he was going to be huge. I interviewed him. He was absolutely huge. Was he well-known? No. To be honest with you, I can't remember his first name right now. I remember his last name is Gilks. Let me find out. Maids in Black. And so the reason that I bring that up is these are people who you don't know. Rohan Gilk, Gilkis, or Gilks, excuse me, Rohan Gilks. He, um, he's not the big name. The problem is the big names have been interviewed by so many people that we all go after them. I interviewed the, the guy who created League of Legends. His big annual competition, the, the video game, is watched by more people than the Super Bowl. I interviewed him. I thought he would be amazing. People would not believe that I got this guy who created this famous game. It wasn't a huge success. It was a great interview. It wasn't a huge success because if you Google an interview with the founder of League of Legends, there are hundreds of thousands of entries online. He's been interviewed not hundreds of thousands of times, but interviewed thousands of times, I'd imagine. And then there have been hundreds of thousands of mentions of it. I, for a while there, had the the monopoly on the Rohan story about Maids in Black. Nobody else had it. And I had proof that it was successful. So the question for us is, where do we find these little pockets of communities, these small communities that have 
a passion that we can then tap into. In the uh, crypto space right now, there are people who, if I were you, I would say, which crypto discords are super hot, where people are now making money fast, doing too much work on their own that could use assistance. Now, I'm not going to go and find out who the top person is. I'm going to let them show me who's the most active, who is getting the most excitement, right? And then go see if I could find if I could find them. One of the crypto uh, sites is a place called BitClout, where it's basically like Twitter, but it's all built around uh, crypto. You can see some of these people are growing so fast. The community is not just loving their stuff. They're buying their freaking NFTs. This guy, Daniel Kemp, is making NFTs. He's making basically making digital art of like Steve Jobs, of random people, and people are paying hundreds, thousands of dollars for it. You can see how much money he's making with it. He's still a dude working out of his house in England. I don't think he has an assistant. We know that he now has a passionate audience. You interview him, you interview people in that community, and then people in that community will come find him, and then you've got some interest. That's the thing I think that works best. Not the big brand names. Nobody knows Daniel yet, but one day they will. But the people who the small communities are telling you they're amazing. We can't get enough of them. That's fantastic. When you um, when you look at podcasts, I bet you view them very differently than the average person. And I'm interested in some of the lessons or best practices uh, for the audience if they're deciding to start or want to get started in something like that. I'll give you one. Um, I'll give you one that's not obvious and not expected. This guy, Bob Heiler, has helped me for years with my podcast. He decides that he's going to create a company that helps real estate agents, excuse me, not real estate agents, it helps uh, bankruptcy lawyers get clients online ads. He says, they're not going online. I'm going to help them go online. So he starts contacting them. They don't respond. He has these beautiful cards, like wedding invitation-like cards printed up. He mails it to them. No response. He's not getting customers. It's none of it's working. He finally says, you know what? I'm going to start interviewing. He starts doing interviews with them. Unlike me, where I care about my audience. I want to see how big the audience could be. He says, who cares? Because I'm going to interview one at a time. I'm going to be, I'm going to be the one person who gives them a little bit of credibility. Maybe they link to it. Maybe they don't, but I'm going to have 45 minutes of their time where if I say, can I pitch you on my services for 45 minutes, they're never going to do it. So he does a call with them. And what he starts to see is number one, he learned their lingo, the way they describe the bankruptcy process, which type of bankruptcy is super effective and which is not, where they can actually help and where they don't want customers because there's not much they could do for them. And at the end of each, so he now knows how to express what he's selling better from each one of these conversations. But the other thing he told me that happens is he says, inevitably, at the end of the conversation, people go, how did I do? And then he tells them, and then he says, by the way, what do you do? And then he says, I help bankruptcy lawyers get more customers by finding online leads. And now he's gotten their attention and he can pitch them from a place of, first of all, connection because he's talked to them for a bit and also from a place of knowing what they care about and have, and they have some affection for him. And so we keep thinking about podcasting is how many people can I get? I keep wanting to say to podcasters and interviewers, think about how one person can get a lot more information for you than how one person get a lot more people for you. And Bob Heiler is a great example. He just cares about the one person he's doing an interview with. If the audience happens to listen, great. If not, that's fine. But he ends up closing sale after sale after sale because of that, and then builds a relationship with people and builds an audience and then builds a reputation for himself in the space. So I'd suggest that more people should follow the Bob Heiler method than even the Andrew Warner method. Well, actually, you know, what's interesting is I think you said something that most um, entrepreneurs need at some point as they're scaling 
uh, you hit the million dollar mark and you're like, okay, woo, I did it. 96% don't. Then you hit the $10 million mark and you're like, woo, I did it. 4% of people ever do that, right? Then you get to 50 million and you're like, woo, I really did it. But I think what has to happen at each of those milestones, we call them badlands, the, the, the stretch between, is you have to understand the lingo of your ideal customer which is exactly what you just described, doing a podcast, targeting your ideal customers, and then figuring out exactly what their language is and how you convert and how you can serve and help them. That's, that's, the, that's the missing sauce, typically, when you're going from 10 to $50 million, is just understanding at a high level your customers' needs. There was an early entrepreneur who listened to my podcast, Brian Castle who said, wait, I'm seeing how Andrew does these interviews. I'm going to do the same Andrew Warner style interview customer development to understand how my customers do what they do. And as a result, he's built multiple companies. His latest one is Zip Message, which allows people to add video uh, interactions for customer service instead of you know, emailing uh, with your customer service question. And so I think that's absolutely right. If we can interview our customer learn more about their pains, their problems. And when they don't reveal a pain, we, instead of fighting the resistance, we join the resistance. We give them a place to be vulnerable by being vulnerable first. Techniques, we'll learn more about the people who want to buy from us and we'll know how to talk to them in a way that helps them care about us and want to buy from us. What's awesome about this conversation, and if you're joining us on um, video right now, I'm, I'm showing the book. Like I literally have Andrew's You printed book it here. out. I printed out, absolutely, I printed it out. Okay. Here, here's the deal. We have only began to scratch the surface. Like there's so much gold in this thing. And I just, I, I literally, uh, when you sent it to me, I think it was the next night or the day after, I just dove in and I couldn't put it down. I, I literally stayed up until one in the morning until wow. I finished it. And I think, and, and it's because it's, it's, you know, I have a podcast and I'm, I'm able to do exactly what you said, which is learn from somebody who's, you know, gained mastery around it. Is there any one thing that we haven't talked about here that would be important from the book that you'd want to share? That's question number one. And I'm going to stack questions. I'm sure that's against all your framework, but <laughs> also at the end of answering that question, please let people know how to connect with you, find the book, get the book be in your world, just, just in your world. The thing that I would say more than anything else is that our heroes are accessible today. We tend to like roll our eyes and say, ah, oh, another podcast. Why would anyone want me to do another podcast? We should be so lucky that there's a world of people who are listening to podcasts. There's a world of people who are willing to say yes to podcasts. There's a whole now industry of people whose job is to book guests on podcasts. We should be so lucky to have this kind of access, to have this access and then waste it. What a disappointment to have this access and say, ah, I didn't do it and look back 10 years from now and say, everyone's now in their virtual reality, 3D headset world. I can't talk to anybody online or in person without talking to the avatar. I wish I'd appreciated it more. That's a thing that we should really not take for granted and jump on. We, we're talking about conferences where people are accessible, online Zoom calls where they're accessible, interview requests where they're accessible. If you just spin up something, there's a site called racket.com where you can just host your own 10-minute podcast needing nothing, no browser, no nothing just while well, browser on your phone and, uh, and, and your phone, that's it. You could do a podcast, even an interview with someone else when all these tools exist and you don't, 
use them at a time when people are so accessible, it's a big waste. I don't know how much longer this will be. I don't think you're going to forever have access to all your heroes. We should, we should jump on it now, today, realize how good this is and not waste it. And then as far as the book, also realize how good it is. I spent so much time writing this book. Um, you can find it at a bookstore starting mid-October. Mid and if you want to get some of these techniques that we talked about in more like clear example methods that I show you how I used and other people have used, if you just go to stopaskingquestions.co, not .com, stopaskingquestions.co, uh, we'll just give you, I, I think we're basically giving the whole book away at that point, just like one chapter at a time. And it's been phenomenal to do that. After writing this book, what have you learned? What's what? And, and I, and I say that because I think every time you go through a process and I know how thick this book is with so much gold, what, what did you walk away, you know, realizing, learning, I didn't realize the value over the years of analyzing what I did. And then when something worked right, naming it and explaining it for my team, naming it and explaining it for myself, I was just doing it because I thought I was being anal. And in the end, I realized that I'd learned the process. I'd mastered the process of interviewing because I took the time to pay attention to what was working, to name it. And to document it somewhere. I think I would do that with more aspects of my life that mattered. And I could see myself doing that as I do sales to name the things at work, come up with examples and then document it. If I'm, if I'm working with my kids, anything that's important, I should just do that in a journal and whatever. And then what I have is a self-awareness about what works in my life and what I do well. And the nice upside of that is I can write a book and share that with someone else. I can have expertise and then use it to guide other people. But I don't think we do enough of that. And I don't think I appreciated the little that I did for how significant it is. This whole book came from me naming the things that work it's just and so writing down examples of. Well, we call that a framework. And you've backed into, as you're scaling and growing a company, the thing that you have to do is you have to create frameworks for marketing, sales, ops, and, mm -hmm. and, and then teach your team how to do it. And we're right now in the thick of that. And I can tell you, it's the hardest thing in the world to train somebody else, the knowledge that you have as an entrepreneur to pull it out of your brain and yeah. then depart it to somebody in bite-sized chunks so that they can then follow it. So how they can do, do it. How do you get them to do that? To recognize what they're doing first of all and then explain it to someone else second and then have someone who's not be able to do it as well as possible well it's framework i mean we just we're, we're nailing it right now um it's interesting because yesterday literally in our sales uh, the summit i keep bringing it up because it just happened yesterday right and we're working through we have this beautiful framework for helping a customer discover where they need leverage in their life and you know, what the obstacles are and pain points, everything that a good sales team should have. Um, but there was something missing. And as an entrepreneur, I knew that it wasn't right. It wasn't landing perfectly. Uh -huh. it, it, it wasn't I, the energy, you know, it's wild. It was an energy. And that was the last thing that we documented. It was the last piece of the framework. And, and wildly enough, positivity, like was the number one thing that we, as a group, we all agreed was the most important way to approach a sales call. And you think you could document how to get the positivity? 
We absolutely did. We, 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 we absolutely did. In fact, I have it on a whiteboard right over here. And, 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 and literally it says eye contact. We're all on zoom eye right. contact. Are you smiling? Did you thank the person for being there? Andrew, thanks for being here today. It's been so amazing interviewing you like wildly enough, just giving gratitude. So we named it gratitude, eye contact, a high level of energy. Okay. What about this? I, I totally buy into that. And then I end up not using my own checklist for something as, as what feels to me too basic and too human as I'm just starting a conversation with someone. Why do I need to go through a checklist of how to smile? Even though I know the checklist is good. How do you make sure that, that if you write a checklist like that for something that's so important, but might seem too banal to have a checklist for that we actually use the checklist? How do you make sure it gets used? God, it's like, you know, exactly how to ask great questions. Um, so we call it never allowing somebody to ever grade their own homework. You and I, as entrepreneurs, we know how to move a, a customer through the buying funnel. Uh -huh. And we, we know when to vary from the, from the framework or not vary from the framework. Um, but if we lose the customer, it's our cash, right? It's our money in the pocket. It's, it's yeah. it, you know, we're the ones that are affected. Now, some could say that not only are you affected, but your employees are affected because now you're taking opportunity away from them. The point though is never allowing somebody to grade their own homework. So we pull two calls every single week. Um, every single week we pull two calls and then we grade whether the call started with positivity. Was there eye contact? Did the lead laugh? Did, 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 was it fun? Like wildly. So wait, if, if I don't do it, I know there's a good chance that Daniel is going to see it, that my boss and my coworkers are going to see it and then call me out. And the fact that there's some attention on it means that I'm going to pay attention myself. Uh, got and All right. I got it. And then how do you make a customer feel comfortable with you recording a sales call? We just call it out. Hey, we record everything. It's, it's so that we can serve you at a high level. And it also provides a transcript. I mean, as you know, Zoom mm -hmm. gives you a transcript at the end, but it's a very simple thing to do. If, if they're uncomfortable, we'll say, no problem. Let me take it off. Yeah. Um, but we do this for you because our job is to serve. Like you're going to tell me your pain points. We're going to say we can solve it. And then we're going to go about the work of actually solving it. Right. This gives us a, right. a path so that we fully understand and you've articulated the challenge that we're gonna, we're gonna you know, bring to light. Yeah, you know what, now that we're doing so much online, it's so much easier to be aware, to document. And then if you document it for yourself, it's a natural to say, why am I doing the same thing over and over when I can bring someone else in and have them do the thing? Yeah, so that's the big takeaway for me. Now, it, I've written the book, I'm so proud of to have written it. I now need to be more respectful even of these this processes of writing things down, of naming them, of being aware of it. Even if no one else reads the book on it, I want to be aware of it myself. And that's what true leadership is, um, documenting, giving them the systems, helping them through it, and then actually following the system that you ask them to follow. Because, you know, if you don't, then that's not real leadership. Well, Andrew, we have had a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you. Again, let's make sure people know how to find you. Um, don't ask questions.co. Uh, stop asking. Like, think about that big red stop sign. Stop asking questions.co. And frankly, I'm totally Googleable. Andrew Warner, the problem that I have in buying a home here, I'm sure, is everyone's Googling me before I come into the home. Every time you hire someone for any kind of service, they're Googling. Well, Andrew Warner, why don't I charge more? That's perfect. All right, brother. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much you. for sharing today. I've, I've had a really good time. Thanks. Thanks.